You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Rylan, I've heard a lot about you through Athlinks. That's, that's the extent I know. I usually do some background on people. Because I knew almost nothing about you, I decided to come in totally blind. So Kirk knows a bit. I'm going to do the, I'm, I'm going to, I guess, represent the audience here. I know nothing about you and I'm just going to learn on the fly here. Sweet. There's not much to know. It's the first time I've done it. I decided not to dig at all. That's not because it's your birthday, Bracken, and you're out drinking margaritas and celebrating instead of doing your job, is it? Just partying harder today. Dude, happy birthday. Thank you very much. You know what I saw? I saw the OCR report gave you a happy birthday Instagram shout out, and I got none on Monday. And now I'm really disgruntled with the OCR report. <laughs> well, I was about to thank them, and I clicked on them. And in their their bio, it says bringing you, it said like the new leader in OCR news, bringing you the best podcast. And so I just blocked them right away because they're yeah. going to put themselves over us. That's it. <laughs> so Rylan, we're talking to Rylan. Is it Shadig? Yeah, Shadig. Shadig. And we were just talking about where you're at. So where are you, where are you at right now, like location-wise in the U.S. Coming, coming to us from? I'm a little bit north of Salt Lake City in a place called Kaysville. It's like in between Ogden and Salt Lake City in Utah. Well, that means you're going to be going to the Utah Spartan Race, aren't you? Oh, yeah. This is home turf. I, I'm going to park the van up there and be uh, running up and down Snow Basin to get ready. So one piece slides into place here of why he did well in Montana. I love running <laughs> hills. Is that where, because if I'm not mistaken, you, uh, you're a bit of a nomad, aren't you? Yeah, I live in a van. Well, another guy lived in the van life, Bracken. What do you think of that? He's a little more clean cut than the last guy we had on here that lives in a van. See, that's because for work, I have to shave. So like my days off, I shave maybe once, but my days on, I have to shave every morning. So it's uh, And what do you do? I'm a firefighter, EMT. Okay. Yeah. Ah. You're pretty young though still, aren't you? You're 22, one? Just turned 23. 23? Yep. Firefighter. And you said your brother's a firefighter as well? Yep. Yeah, he's uh, he just turned 26 yesterday. Or Does he share the van with you? No, no. This is his place that I'm at right now. Okay. All right. And how does one live out of a van and have a a full-time job that requires you to be in the same place. You just live in your van in that city or do you, how do you maneuver that? Uh, so I actually have the perfect job for it. Um, what, as soon as I, there's kind of a lot that happened in the course of one year. Um, but I knew I wanted to be a firefighter. So I started chasing that. And around that same time that I was going through my first Academy to get some certifications that were required, I started looking at the van life thing. Um, and then I found out that, um, the department that was interested in picking me up, um, they run a 48 96. So I work 48 hours straight and then I have 96 off. Um, Mm -hmm. except we have a lot of overtime. So I end up working more than that often. Um, but I found out that 
shift trades are also a thing. So that's how I went up to Montana. Basically you, you hit up a buddy that has the same position of you, as you. And you're like, Hey, I need, uh, this day off. Can I trade you for another day? So you, you might work a 72 or something like that to pay him back. But if you trade two of your days, you get 10 days off in a row. Um, so it's actually perfect for van life. Cause I go back to the station and I can, we ball out on meals there. So like, uh, I like to cook. So me and my best friend actually work together. Um, and we monopolize a lot of the meals. So like we're having loaded salads with all kinds of stuff in them and like steak and chicken and rice and veggies, like all the time. So we make good food at the station. And then when I'm in the van, I just make really simple meals for like three or four days. And then I go back to the station and ball out. So it's a good gig. And I shower at the station while I'm there. I sleep there. And then I just bounce for four days wherever I feel like going. My first like question right away is, if you're on for 48 to 72 hours straight, where does training fit into that? Dude, so I'm extremely blessed to have the job that I do. Um, but it, that's the most frustrating part to me. Um, so I am allotted about an hour and a half. Um, they, you try and keep it under two hours. So you're not that guy that's always working out. Um, if it's a slow day, I'll do more, but, uh, my station is kind of steady most of the time. So usually I try and get, my station is very low on morning calls. So I try and get a workout in, in the morning. Um, and I do, I've, I'm still learning. Um, I'm still trying to adapt, but it's been almost two years since I've been doing this now. Um, so I've kind of learned that I can stack my four days off super heavy with a lot of volume. And then what I do is I don't get good sleep while I'm on shift. I work at our night heavy station. So we usually get at least two night calls a night. Um, sometimes four or five, if it's a really bad night, which means you don't really get sleep. Um, so that's the hard part. But as far as working out, I can usually do day one, since I'm coming in fresh off the four day as sleep wise, I'll try and do a hard circuit. Um, and day two is like a flex. If we get blasted at night, then I won't work out hard. If we sleep all night by the grace of God, then honestly, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll hit it hard today. But that day two is like my flex day in the six day cycle I work. It's like, uh, however I feel, that's how hard I go. Um, yeah. And then when I get off ship, it's in a, it's an immediate three hour nap. Like I literally crawl into bed. I drive to a park, black out the curtain, the windows, like throw up everything. And then I just literally sleep for as long as I can. And then I usually wake up around like noon or one, um, and I try and train as hard as I can so that I get tired again. And then I try and sleep as much as I can that next night. So yeah, that's kind of my life. <laughs> that's, that's unique. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not good sleep wise. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm trying to modify it to, to work. Cause I feel wrecked a lot of the time when I get off shift, but if I can at least get a lot of volume in, even if like I can't bring the intensity up, I usually sleep good that first night off for like a solid nine, 10 hours. Um, and then usually I'm recovered enough to hit the next three days pretty hard. So that's usually how it goes. So do you have to avoid doing anything too taxing on workouts when you're on shift just so that you can perform? So like you don't have to, but, um, 
it's a very good rule of thumb to be able to do your job if it happens. So uh, it's a fair statement. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't be crampy or, or no, you don't want to be cramping. So like, right. Ryland's 23. He doesn't cramp yet. Reckon. He's, he's Oh, a... that was me. The whole last three miles of the Montana race. <laughs> oh, I was borderline cramping the whole time. It was bad. Oh man. Continue. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I have a kind of a rule with myself of, it usually takes us about five to seven minutes to change from like our regular workout gear or whatever into my turnouts and get to the fire or whatever call we're going on. Um, Cause if it's a medical call, like usually the hardest thing I do is just lift someone that's abnormally large off the ground. Um, and that's only a couple seconds. It's not super hard or we carry them out the door on a, on like a, a tarp looking thing um there's different ways that we move them or a backboard whatever it is um and then if it's on a fire that's where it's really physically taxing so i kind of have this rule if i can't be breathing normal and feel very good that i can do my job within five to seven minutes of stopping my workout then i won't go harder than that so that's kind of my personal rule that seems logical yeah how how often do I want to get to why we're talking to you today, by the way, after this little intro, but how often are you mid-workout and you're like, mother F, that call came at the worst time. Like, I imagine that happens more often than you would want. Is that true or not? I'm not proud of how many patients um, have had to deal with me dripping sweat when I respond on a call in the middle of summer. Like, lately it's been getting bad because I think uh, – me and my best friend, he's also really into working out. He's going to hit the Utah Spartan as well. Um, he used to be a gymnast, so he pushes me on all of the upper body stuff a ton while we're at work. Um, yeah, he. Uh, we were on like attempt number three the other day of trying to work out. Like we got done with our warm up, went out, got back, did some chores, cooked for the crew, and then we went out for attempt number two, warmed up, we're halfway through. And then we got called out again. And then by attempt number three, we got it done. Um, but it happens a lot. Like it, I would say like 50% of the time I'm working on getting my workout done. And then a call comes in and whether it's serious or not serious, like it, it doesn't matter. You just go. So um, like I show up sweaty on calls all the time, um, but that's just how you got to roll with it. So luckily it is a culture of, like if, if you never work out, you're not going to be able to be as fit for the job. So you are supposed to work out and you're allowed to work out on shift, especially since you're there for 48 hours, but it's not a, not everybody does it, but most guys do try and get a workout in. So it's not looked down on if you show up sweaty for a call, which is thankfully a very good thing for me. Yeah. So. I don't know you, I don't know you well, but I would imagine you, you fit the bill. You're fit, you're fit enough to uh, perform your tasks. I would imagine based on some recent results, but let, I want to intro why we're talking to you today, Ryland, because uh, you've run, I believe two Spartan race weekends so far. Am I missing anything there? Uh, so I'm going to be hundred percent honest about, I think three years ago, I tried uh-huh. one in like Lawlin, Nevada or something with my little brother. Um, and I was a completely different build. Um, I was a mountain biker at the time and I had no idea, like zero idea what I was doing, even less than Vegas. Um, so, um, 
I did, I think it was a super like three years ago. Um, okay. And I honestly sucked at it. I felt like I was pretty bad at it. Um, That's most people's first experience. But but you went to Vegas. So, so you're somebody that I imagine most everybody sees your name pop up on this episode and is going to be like, who is that? And why are they talking to him? Um, and I would say, Bracken, you obviously are in the same boat. Like I would say I know the least about Rylan out of any, any or all the guests we've had on up to this date, which is a good thing. But um, you went to Vegas. Tell me if I'm incorrect. This is Vegas in March of this year. March, March, right? And you ran the age group on Saturday and you smashed everybody. And then you show up on Sunday morning to the race venue and say, hey, I crushed everybody yesterday. Can I run elite? That's not how I said it. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I put, right. That's how I said it. <laughs> and then you go toe the line in your soccer shorts because I remember those damn soccer shorts. Oh, yeah. Behind me. And you end up on a podium in your first elite Spartan race. And and not that I'm God's gift to Spartan racing or VJ's God's gift to Spartan racing, even though he's closer, um, but you hung, right? And you end up on a podium in a field that had some good runners in it. And then you go to Montana another month later and you go and win your first Spartan race beast in the mountains in Montana, which is like a prestigious course in our world. And here you are on our podcast. So how does that happen, Rylan? I'm going to be honest. Uh, I have no idea um i the i almost didn't show up to that vegas race to even race age group because i felt very underprepared um and all, also to the the montana one i didn't know i was going for sure until the week before because i was working on getting trades so that i could go up and race it um so that was another last minute sign up um i've had this this urge for like the last few years that I should give it a shot. Um, and I actually was going to try last year and they all got shut down. Um, and then I had a lot of it band issues over the winter. Like I, I got it last spring, took care of it, was able to start running again over the summer a little bit. Um, and then I flared up my other it band this last winter. Um, and finally started being able to run again, um, in February. Um, and no, January, I started with like a couple miles here and there. Um, then I went to Ecuador and, um, actually ate something and got completely wrecked for a couple weeks and couldn't run very fast without my stomach hurting for like a month. Um, until two weeks before that Las Vegas Spartan. So you're fresh. I was really yeah, fresh. Super fresh. Fresh as a daisy. <laughs> That's yeah. nature's taper right there. Yep. Hit South um, America, showing yeah, up. Yeah. 10 pounds lighter than normal. Yeah, yeah seriously. Um, and then, uh, so I almost didn't go because um, my, I have no idea how that race went well um, because like, I mean, I was talking to Ian after the Montana Spartan and I just barely made it up to running 20 to 25 miles a week um, just, just recently. Like this week I'm shooting for 28. Um, 28 to 30 is kind of the goal. Um, so honestly, I have no idea. Um, I, I knew that if I wanted to give this a shot, I would have to work on climbing. So that's one thing I have been able to do consistently, um, to get grip strength better as I climb a lot and I live in a van. So I use it for a shower too, and a gym. Uh, so I, I go to I'm a climbing gym in Salt Lake. Um, there's a couple different ones that are part of the pass. 
Um, so I do that almost every day that I'm off. And then when I'm on shift, I try and do a lot of pull-ups and like weird stuff on the pull-up bar. Um, and then a lot of uh, weights and try to equal out and work on injury prevention at work and do lower intensity, but more strength work for one of the days. And then the other day is like a circuit with tire flips, run around the station, handstand walk, planks, run up the stairs, do some pull-ups, run around the station again, just like some circuit like that for 30 minutes. Um, just kind of keeping the heart rate below 170, but still working hard. Um, and that way I'm still pretty good for calls if we get one. Um, and very low volume so that I'm not blasted for calls. Um, and yeah, and then off work, I, I love mountain biking. So I figure um, that helps. That's where my background um, is cycling. So I like to do that for fun. And But honestly, I have no idea how I showed up to Las Vegas with the volume and uh, just no really running background and how it went well. Um, but I'm very grateful for it. And uh, I honestly don't, think it was me like I've kind of been wondering if I should try racing again at some level for a long time and uh I I have different reasons for racing this time around than when I was mountain biking um so when I was mountain biking it was kind of about me and it was uh I was like chasing the money and I wanted it to be my job and I wanted to try and go to the Olympics and stuff like that um and I burnt myself out um, I developed some like unhealthy relationships with food and stuff like that. So I had to take a step back and just like focus on my career. Um, and then, then I got the career that I wanted and, uh, I still felt really empty inside and kind of like something was missing and it took a while, but eventually like I, um, I found my answer to like my greater purpose in life. Um, and for me, that was Christianity. Um, and that's definitely changed a lot of my perspective on how I live and also how I train and how I view the opportunities that I'm given to train. So I was, um, in my head, like I'm, I do a lot of prayer. Um, and I was asking if like, this is something that I'm, I'm supposed to do, um, right before that Las Vegas Spartan. And uh, I, I read your post after the race and it sounded yeah. like, like you were, you were showing up and, and this is going to help you understand what the heck to do moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. It very much was like, cause I, I know I was so underprepared for that race and I know I didn't deserve that result. Um, and I used to not believe at all in, uh, in any, like God, like pointing out anything in my life, uh, in that way, like showing me where to go. Um, and that's changed a lot. Like now I, I do believe that he can guide me in certain directions and wants me to do certain things. Um, so I took that as an answer for yes. And that's why I've been starting to buckle down and train for this a lot more, but I like, especially that first race and Montana, like I would, I don't understand, honestly, like, I don't think I deserve those results, but I'm really happy to be there. Well, here's the thing. We can't just drop these little like tantalizing nuggets. I I only run 20 miles per week. I have a mountain biking background. I wanted to be in the Olympics. I developed unhealthy relationship with food and then just move right on. Uh, dude, I don't even like, I don't know how, this, how works. this podcast works. This podcast doesn't work. That way. You're just chumming the water and <laughs> Kirk and I are circling right now. So, okay. <laughs> you, you opened a lot of cans there. You, you know did. And they're fantastic right. cans. Uh -huh. They're okay. fantastic cans. And if we're introducing you to the 
to the running endurance world, it sounds like the biking world already might know who you are. We're going to really introduce you. So we got to rewind back years and years and years. Pick us up where you started on your journey to where you got today. And let's unpack this all. You got too much spicy stuff in there to just breeze over. It's just your story to you, but for everyone else, this is what we're here for. Okay. Uh, so there I was in the hospital, born Lincoln, <laughs> Boom. Nebraska. Bright flash of light. Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> yep. From Nebraska, Cornhusker. Um, lived there until I was seven. That's where I started playing soccer. Um, I started when I was about five, and all I wanted to do growing up was be a professional soccer player. Like that's, that was my dream. Um, moved to Logan, Utah, up in Northern Utah when I was seven. So thankful because I love the mountains and I'm never leaving. You didn't have enough mountains in Lincoln, Nebraska for you? No, I had no idea what I was missing, but now looking back, I'm like, I can't believe I lived there. I would never make it now. Um, (laughs) So, uh, moved there when I was seven started playing soccer pretty competitively around eight and moving towards like traveling teams and stuff. When I was 10, I had amazing parents that put up with me traveling all over for soccer. Um, and I loved playing it. And I realized like probably around middle school, high school that, uh, I honestly didn't think I had the, the talent to go pro like I didn't have that natural instinct as much but I really wanted to play in college still um so I started reaching out to coaches in high school and high school soccer was going well um and then when I was 16 I my little brother started mountain biking and I had just bought like a mountain bike online um don't do that by the way if you're thinking about it like if you're looking at a gravity from bikes direct it's not worth it like yeah i started oh, working come on. At you a can't bike not bikes at, direct for a yeah. beginner <laughs> yeah so so uh, i get a mountain bike and i show up i hear about this mountain biking team in logan um and at that point high school mountain biking was pretty new uh but it had been going on in utah for a couple years so there's there was probably when i first showed up i think there were 1500 kids racing per weekend um, between a thousand and 15. So it was getting pretty big and I heard about the mountain biking team. So, and you're on a gravity. Yep. So I show up and they do intervals that day for practice. And I'm like, well, as far as the soccer team goes, like if the coach is telling us to do ladders, I want to be the fastest one. Like that was my mentality. Like my mom, especially my dad, they always, uh, they always encouraged us to show the coaches like, that we meant business and that we wanted to play the whole game. And I hated getting subbed out. So you had to like show them in practice. I can run more than anybody else. Like I, I can be in the whole game and not, not be phased. Um, so I had that mentality when I switched to mountain biking too, I was like, all these kids, like they've got nicer bikes, but like, I, I should be able to go up this hill as fast as they can. And like, I had the mentality of, I hate getting beat. Absolutely hate it. So, um, they did intervals that day and, uh, I think the fastest kid on the team was not there. So I had no idea, but like how fast kids could be. Um, but the intervals went well and the coach, uh, like saw what bike I was on and stuff. And he, he said I needed to race, um, and 
actually ended up going on our like Craigslist type thing. It's called KSL here and putting together a bike for me. And I basically like bought old parts off him and then got some Chinese carbon frame uh, for like 500 bucks with a suspension fork on it and then bought all of his parts and put together a race bike for like 800 bucks. And I had just started working at a bike shop because uh, I had turned 16. So I got hired at a bike shop and uh, and his name's Rick Weatherald. He's actually uh, coached me through mountain biking quite a bit. And he basically took me under his wing and I started racing mountain bikes and showed up to my first high school race and I raced JV as a junior. Um, and those kids are fast. Like I, I think I started, there were a hundred kids in my category and we all started. And I just remember the biggest adrenaline dump of my life. Cause all of us are trying to go for the same piece of single track. And this is my first race ever. Cause I had never done it before. And, uh, I, I think I ended up working up to fourth um, and I absolutely loved it. And I remember my mom went to go watch that race and uh, she asked me afterwards, she could see how happy I was and how stoked I was to, to race. And she asked me, so did you like that more than soccer? And in my mind, I was, I wanted to say yes, but like I couldn't throw the previous 11 years of my life out the window. So I said about the same, like, I, I love them both. Um, so I, I kept racing JV and, um, the thing about mountain biking is sometimes you get flats and, and I was trying to race with kids who had way more skill than me. So I would crash a lot, um, and then try and catch up with my lungs and then crash again. And, uh, so I, I was, I'd, I don't think I ever won a race that first year in JV. I think I was always like second or third, sometimes 10th if I got a flat or something. And I was playing soccer at the same time. So I would skip some mountain bike races. And then towards the end of the season, I started skipping soccer games instead. Um, how long, that's in, how long are like, uh, we don't have high school mountain bike racing here that I know of. Bracken, that's not in Wisconsin either, is it? Do you know of? I mean, if they do, I, I'd assume it's a club sport. A club sport, yeah. Um, how long are races? Although, I got to say, I got to apologize. Kirk, we got a message afterwards. There is, according to a, a listener, 100% collegiate equestrian in the United States. What? So I spoke out of pocket there. Like the like the Ivy League schools or what? They just said the 100% there is a collegiate university-sponsored equestrian. So I've got a... I've got to accept the fact that I was wrong. Not you're wrong. <laughs> I thought it was all private, so maybe I'm wrong about this too. All right. But anyways, we don't have. I, we don't, I don't, it don't know much private. of it here. So, so yeah. what? Uh, how far do you race? Like high school mountain biking? Like what is the setup? You hit. You basically all take like a gunshot to some single track, and then you yep. rip a rip a loop a few times, basically. Yep. You go around the same loop probably three to five times. Um, they're making it more spectator friendly, so it's more like seven times now in the elite fields. Like it's a shorter loop. Um, in high school, our races were like just under an hour from what I remember. That's a long time a long time for a 16 to 18 year old kid to rev it. If you're new to a sport that oh, yeah. also needs technique and skill. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're basically trying to red line to the point where you can still think enough to go downhill right after. And then you go downhill and sometimes you got to pedal and stuff. 
and then you're right back uphill. Um, so you, you have to be really comfortable with, you know, holding like 180 to 190 beats per minute for like five to 10 minutes and then drop down to 160, recover, and then back up type thing. Uh, at least for my heart Bracken rate. does threshold work at 160, so that doesn't sound very recovery to you, does it? I'm also old now. Well, for, <laughs> for everyone, it's different. Um, I've noticed my heart rate, my max is kind of dropping a little bit on the bike for sure. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I started, started doing that. Um, and I was also kind of getting burnt out on soccer. There were some politics going on and I, I found out with mountain biking, it politics didn't matter at all. Like it didn't matter who the parents were, uh, didn't matter who the coach was. I could sign up without any team and just sign up as an individual to race as long as I had the license for that category. And all the work that I put in and training could show up on race day if everything went to plan. Um, That's exactly it. There's, there might be nothing better than team sports, but yep. it's very difficult to quantify who belongs where and politics can play. When you get yep. to t- stopwatch based sports, it is as black and white as it gets and you cannot play the political game. And if you do, it's so obvious that everyone knows it. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's a giant relief to anyone who's ever been screwed over in a team sport because someone's parent had sway with the administration or with the, with the governing body. Yeah. So I, I actually didn't even play soccer my senior year. Nobody really understood. That was was quick. Yeah. I, so I decided at the end of that year, um, I started looking at kind of my, my growth curve and how fast I thought I could potentially get, um, in the next year. And I decided that I wanted to try and make the, the junior world cup team the next year. Going from a JV athlete to a junior world cup. That was a big, it's an ambitious goal. I had I like nine, it. I had like nine months to do it. So I was, I was like, you can do anything in nine months. So <laughs> that was my mindset. Like my, I think it was definitely the way I was raised where I was kind of, I was taught if you really give everything, then you can accomplish a lot. Um, so I, I dropped soccer, didn't play that spring, which was high school season. So I missed my senior year of high school and, um, no one really understood, but I, I just started riding every day. And, uh, Rick Weatherald was a older pro and he, he's the one who kind of encouraged me and told me where my potential could be. Um, and I raced cycle cross, um, immediately after JVC season, which was in the fall of like 2016 or something like that. Um, or maybe 20, I can't remember that far back. I was 16 years old. So while I was 16 in the fall, I was racing cycle cross and into the winter. Um, then in the winter they had fat bike. <laughs> We're talking about, I can't remember back that far. I was 16. <laughs> oh, oh my man. goodness. It's bad. My second child was born in 2016. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I think it was actually like 2014 or 2015. Uh, okay. Either way, it's funny. Perspective's everything, right? Yes, that's true. All right, continue. So I found out that in February of that next year when I was uh when I was turning I was 17, about to turn 18, that they had fat bike nationals um in uh I think it was Nordic Valley, really close to where they're having the Spartan race, actually, Powder Mountain. Um, So 
I signed up for that um, because I knew that a kid that had raced when the World Cup team for mountain biking, it's 17 and 18 year olds. Those are the, that's the like age group for it. And I knew that one of the kids that raced the World Cup when he was 17 and we were all about to turn 18 and start racing uh, the, as the, the older of the two years that you could qualify. Um, I knew that he lived in Huntsville, Utah and that he had won it the previous year. And so he would probably be there again, um, for fat bike national. So I went purposefully to just see like how, how much I could keep up on a snow bike with him. Cause it was the closest thing that I could get going into that next season. Uh, so I ended up taking second behind him and he smoked me on the last climb completely like but you just, were there i think he put in on like an hour long race i'm pretty sure he put a minute or two into me on that last climb because we were together into the second lap he's looking around just making it look easy and then boom just straight up the climb and destroys me um so i was probably a minute back coming across the finish um on like a 10 minute climb so he he opened my eyes but i also was just super excited to be there and also fairly close to him. Um, and I knew I had a couple months more to train before the big races started coming out. Um, and because I did well, that, that second season of high school, the next year, um, I got picked up by a smaller bike company called KHS and they, one of their team leaders moved to Logan, Utah that year. And since I raced high school, he met me, uh, and, um, that was the year I bumped up to varsity and I started doing well in varsity. So he, he basically took me under his wing on his team. Is that typical for uh, a high school varsity athlete to have a bike sponsorship already? Yes. If you're okay. a lot of the top kids will. Yep. Were you one of those by this point? Yes. At that point I was, I was starting to, uh, the next, the next season I was starting to podium, um, the varsity races or be just off the podium. Um, if like I crashed one race and got 10th and then I think the rest of them, I was between fifth and second. Um, I also never won a varsity race. Um, and so that's, uh, that's when I got like a free bike. Um, I didn't have to buy one anymore, which was super helpful. And I had a little bit of support to start racing the, the UCI races, which is like the world ranking races where you can get points to qualify for world cups. Um, so I went to California the following spring, uh, to try and qualify for the world cup team. Cause there's basically like two races at the beginning of every race season in You're California, junior world cup. Or yeah. Junior world cup. So okay. There's like two races in California every year that are basically the highest classification of racing you can do as a junior without racing a world cup. And that's what the USA team uses to select their riders. So you're, you're not, you're racing Europeans cause they come over the pond, but, uh, you're really racing against your other U S riders to see if you can get a spot for to go back to Europe to a world cup or something. Um, and I think I was like seventh or eighth American at those races. So I wasn't fast enough. Um, so they, they, picked they, their, they take like four to five riders okay. over. So they took four to five riders over to Europe. So have you been biking for a full calendar year? Yeah, yet? about a year now. Yep. One year. And now you're, 
top seven, eight in the U.S.? Uh, on paper, yeah, for those races, at least the ones that traveled to it in the 17, 18-year-old category. So even um, if you wanted uh, to downplay it, you're still someone that is in a ranking after one year of sport. Yes, yes. Yeah, so you weren't um, wrong about your your projected rate of improvement. No, I, I had a lot of encouragement and help, and uh, my coaching was was very solid. And I also, I've always been interested in like exercise science type stuff. So I would do a lot of research and, uh, all I did was go to work, train high school stuff, back to work, train high school stuff, sleep, like just over and over. I didn't have really any social life or anything like that. I just did what I loved and that was racing mountain bikes. Um, all my friends were from mountain biking um, and soccer, and that was about it. So you missed qualifying for Junior Worlds. What happened next? Um, then I went. So there's a couple months before they make. That was for the World Cup team. So they would travel to the Junior World Cups, and then Worlds is at the end of the year. So my next goal was Nationals. So I just trained from about April until July. At the end of July, there's Nationals, um, and that was the Olympic year of 2016. Um, and they were only taking, I believe, two riders to Worlds. Um, so I figured I would have to be first or second at Nationals. Missed that again. I got ended up getting fourth. So I didn't 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 get that either. Um, and then I was straight up to uh, applying for my pro license after that. So after that, I raced professionally, um, trying to kind of make a living off of it for three or four years. How does one get their pro license in mountain bike racing? You send in your results. So since I did well enough as a junior, I just had to send them my junior results and they mm -hmm. just bumped me straight up to pro after that. Um, I was technically a U23, but you get a pro license as a U23. It's just to ensure that there's no schlumps entering pro races, jamming up fields and yeah. it's making sure that you've, you've been checked off the list as you're, you're supposed to be there. Yeah. Because a lot of, a lot of people can sprint for 20 seconds. And then you, if you have sketchy riders when in fields of a hundred to 150 people on bikes, all going for the same piece of single track, it's already so dangerous. Like people go down almost every race hitting each other. Um, so they definitely try and make, make sure that everyone should be there, um, at least in the UCI races. So you have to have a pro license for that. The idea of going pro, especially as a young kid is obviously enthralling. Uh, did, did you ride that way for a while or did it just get increasingly more stressful to live that life and try to race for a living? Um, I loved it for like one or two years. Uh, the, the frustrating part was, so as a junior, I was racing towards the front of the field pretty quickly and I loved the pointy end of racing. And then I bumped up to pro and I was racing mid pack. So it was a huge shot to the ego. Um, a big, a big learning curve of just how fast people could be. Um, and at that point, the, the quickness of my development slowed down because I wasn't a beginner anymore. So I really had to start working towards it. Um, and I was still working part-time to full-time at a bike shop and then going to college online just to try and progress that way as well. So 
it was a lot going on, but I, I loved the process of just waking up and training and then I'd go to work, then I do homework and then train again and then go to bed. Um, so really boring life to other people, but that's always kind of been what I like to do. That's the life most people listening are living just so you know, yeah. so it sounds, like, yeah. sounds like a great life to me. Yeah. Other than the homework, I don't miss, I don't miss that crap. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that I'm not doing that right now. So. So what did you reach as far as, so you, you gave us a nugget saying basically you, you were a pro mountain biker and then you were kind of got out of it, so to speak. Yeah. You've been, you know, transitioned. So what was the pinnacle of your mountain biking career? Um, and then what, what made you transition maybe out of it? Uh, I think the pinnacle, uh, was probably my 2018 season. I was a second year U23, if I'm remembering correctly. So I was 20 years old. And uh, I think I got, uh, the first year U23, I think I got 11th at nationals. And then second year, um, I had been cutting weight for a while to improve my power to weight ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and was I did it a little too aggressively. And I think I messed with my hormones a bit and uh, I showed up and had a really good race until the last lap and I flatted and dropped from, I think, eighth or ninth down to 15th um, that second year. And uh, that's kind of what started a a spiral of like a binge eating disorder for me. Um, I remember after that race, like kind of going crazy with food and I would always try and get light for a race. And then after the race, I would kind of have a reward system and eat a ton of food. And, uh, I didn't look at it as an unhealthy thing for a long time until it got out of control after that race. Cause I was so frustrated because I felt like I finally put a really good race together. And then I flatted that last lap. And then the next day in short track, I crashed out. So I went to West Virginia to race nationals and try and qualify for the U 23 world cup team. And basically didn't even get close in either one. And like the whole year felt kind of like a waste. And, uh, I, then I started having like these, these episodes of, uh, just eating insane amounts of food and feeling super sick and not understanding like why I would keep eating. Um, and like no one ever talks about that, especially dudes. Um, and I had no idea like why I was doing it. And then after a couple months of that and putting on like 10 to 15 pounds, which as a cyclist freaked me out. Um, then I would like try and not eat for a a day or two and then I'd eat a ton and then not eat and then eat a ton. And, um, it was a really scary time period in my life because I had no idea what was going on. Um, and then I started researching it and found out that it was like a, a binge eating disorder and I didn't know who to talk about it with. Um, and, I started hating riding my bike because I felt slow on all the climbs. I had put on weight. Um, I was, I had uh, like pressure from, from myself mostly, but also like thinking about, could I, could I even line up sponsors for the next year if I might not race? Cause I don't feel like I want to race. Um, and I, I really didn't know what to do. Um, and one thing that was good that was going for me was I decided to go through my first fire academy um, and start working on that in my off season. So that gave me some direction and and uh, goals that way. But um, like 
and it also made me feel strong because I was squatting and doing more lifting and like improving in another area. But I then I'd go home after class and I would just like eat insane amounts of food and have no idea why. And just like I couldn't stop. It was weird. Um, How long was that going on for? That took about that was about six months and it was all throughout that academy. So I put on when I started the academy, I was 157 at six foot all legs my upper body was so small um and then at the end of the academy i remember stepping on the scale because they had a they had a fitness standard where you could you could get uh like an award if you squatted a certain amount over your body weight and then deadlifted and stuff like that so i remember stepping on the scale to weigh in for the final test and i was 177 and I had not eaten anything the day before to try and be lighter for that. Um, and is there something you talked out. with your coach about throughout, or is there something you kept yourself? Uh, at that point, it was off season, and uh, I I didn't talk to him about it. No. Um, what about your brothers? You seem close with them. Did you let it out to anyone? Uh, I talked to my older brother, and uh, he was awesome about it. And also my parents, because um, I'm very close with my family. But no one in my family had ever had any sort of struggle with eating from what I understand. So it was very, very isolating. Cause I like no one I knew personally struggled with it. You got support, but no actionable info from them. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. No, nobody planted that idea in your head about like getting lighter. Like nobody firmly like sat you down and said, Rylan, if you were 10 pounds lighter, you could be a world champion. Did anybody, was that self-imposed or did you have some maybe influences that way i i in the cycling community it's you kind of already have that but i did have uh i did have one person uh tell me that i think i was 165 at the time at at six foot and they referred to it as like yeah if if you got under 160 like you'd be at fighting weight or something like that um with your with the amount of watts that i had for like a 20 minute test my power to weight ratio would be a lot better if I was like seven pounds lighter, basically. Was that like an easy idea for you to like grab onto and run with? Yeah. So I immediately, I was like, okay, like below 160 is my goal. So I started tracking calories and like I swapped regular rice for cauliflower rice. I put cauliflower rice in my oatmeal to make it more filling, but still have like the oats in there. Um, That's the tough thing. Like I mean, we've had a number of, of guests on that have had their fair share of eating disorders, we will say, but sometimes it's it's an innocent conversation that can even start it. Sometimes it's not, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's somebody saying, you're fat, you need to lose weight. And sometimes like, I don't feel like were those people intentionally telling you to, or was no. that like a strategic conversation? And, and unfortunately you're a perfectionist in some regard maybe, and your mind went with it. Yeah, it was, it was a hundred percent like just, yeah. uh, just someone being nice and like not saying that I was fat at all. Cause I had like, I didn't have any body fat to lose at that point. I knew I was only losing muscle at that point. But, and, and I remember having that discussion and it's just because of the way that I did it. Um, I think I did it too fast and too aggressively trying to drop weight. And I remember, um, I look back on it now and it's, it's sad that I didn't really understand this, but, um, on my recovery days, I would ride 
easy for an hour and a half or two hours, like just below 200, 250 watts, just easy heart rate below 130. Um, and I remember I wouldn't eat breakfast because then I would feel more full from the other two meals and the, and I would try and do a body fat burning ride. So I would ride before I ate and just have coffee before, which is really common with cyclists to try and like kickstart the fat burning instead. Um, cause you're in a fasted state. And so I thought like that was totally normal, but I remember every single ride I went on, including recovery rides, all I could think about was what I would eat afterwards. And that was it. And, uh, I didn't think that was abnormal. Um, and now looking back, um, I realized that was pretty unhealthy. Um, and I would try and be as far under my caloric deficit that I tracked as basically as possible, um, without feeling super, super weak. But as I flirted with that line, the lower my body fat percentage dropped and the smaller I got, um, the more I noticed that I would race some weekends and I would feel amazing. And then as I started dropping too low, like I'd have a race where I just didn't have it. And then the next race would go super well. And then I'd show up again and just like not have it just nothing. Um, so even though the number on the scale was going down and I was racing overall, I was racing consistently better. The consistency of every race, which I used to have where I would pretty much feel good at every race and just stoked to race gone. Like lots of, I would show up to probably 50% of races and like I would have fun racing, but not nearly as much. And sometimes I just felt like garbage. Um, and now I look back and I'm like, Oh, it's cause you weren't eating enough food. It's logical. It's rough and it's slippery in cycling because the entire world is predicated around dropping grams off your frame, off your pedals, off your seat, off your seat post, like your group set, everything you can do to shave grams you do. And at some point, the only thing left is you. And it's, you know, it's real straightforward just to think, all right, I shave 15 grams off my seat post. That's fine. But when it's you, there's that emotional component and how you feel. Your seat post doesn't get fatigued. It cracks or it doesn't, but that's it. Like there's no, there's no swing of hormones or fatigue or chemical imbalance. But as soon as the riders, the last thing left, you're almost pot committed to, to finish off that process if you're a high level cyclist. And it would seem like you're leaving stones unturned if you've addressed every component of your bike, but not your body. And yet, as soon as you start addressing the body, it's, it is a fine line between performance enhancement and destroying yourself. And I was always mm -hmm. a bigger cyclist. Most other mm -hmm. guys that I was racing against were like 140 to 150. Um, and it was completely normal to see guys be 10 pounds heavier in their off season. And then they'd come in to race season. And we would even talk about it. I remember talking with my teammates about like how much weight they were dropping for the season. It was a normal topic. Like, oh, I'm like 150 right now, goal weight of 140. It's like totally normal. You talk to your teammates at team camp and you'd be like, yeah, I've got like five more pounds to go to race weight. Totally normal. Because everyone mm -hmm. knew that your race weight wasn't really sustainable. So you would gain it back in the off season, ride a couple months at over, like you would try and stick to maybe five, 10 pounds over your, your race weight so that you could be a healthier person. And then you'd cut back for race season. Um, and hopefully you hadn't gained more than 10 pounds. Cause like, it's hard to lend it's hard to lose more than 10 pounds. So you can't let yourself go too much in off season. But as far as cycling goes, that's a completely normal thing to fluctuate 10 pounds throughout the year. 
And in running, Kirk, what would you say is our gold standard metric of who are you as an athlete? It's probably either VO2 max or lactate threshold. And what is it in cycling? What is the the term that's always thrown around? It's watts power to kilo. weight ratio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watts per kilo. It, it's 50% of the golden formula for cycling is weight. And it makes sense for a machine. And it makes sense for human body too. But unfortunately, it's the human body not rather than the bike, you know, and that's, that's really, really difficult. When, uh, when did this all come to a head for you then? Like it uh, was when, when cycling meets, I realize I have a problem with food meets. I'm not performing meets. I don't even want to get on the bike. Like what was your, your, you said you found God. What was your coming to Jesus moment here with, uh, with all this, so to speak? <laughs> I, I wish it, I wish I could say it was there. Um, but, uh, the, what I ended up doing instead was focusing on becoming a firefighter because while I was still in that academy, um, I had none of the certifications yet. I didn't have my EMT, didn't have any of the requirements for working at the department I now work at. And I got told I could go test for practice. So I went, because getting hired as a firefighter is a, sometimes a very long process. I didn't experience that. Um, but for most people, it takes a year or two. And a lot of people have to work part-time before they get on full-time. Um, so I was naturally thinking when I got told I could test, even though I didn't have any of the requirements for their hiring process, I was like, okay, I'm literally going just to practice the test taking process so that next time I'll be better. So they had a physical test first and I knew that was where my strength would be. So I just tried to go as fast as I could and get the fastest time out of everyone testing. Um, And then after that, they had, I got invited back to uh, their mechanical aptitude test and personality test. And I guess those went well. Um, and I tested well, so I actually found out that they were still considering me and they invited me to the interview, which is like the last part. Um, and I guess my, so they have a panel of like five, either chiefs or captains, um, and they interview you to see if, uh, if they want to hire you, that's the last part. And, um, I actually ended up testing really well and they wanted to hire me, but I had already signed with a team for the next year. And I was planning on going to Ecuador for three months. So I couldn't take the job because I didn't think it was even an option. Um, so I asked them. And we're sorry to interrupt. We're talking, this is like two years ago, not even now. We're, we're like almost to recent history. Yeah. Two and a half, three years ago. Yeah. Okay, got it. So you still haven't started running? No. Uh-uh. Okay. Continue. Uh, so, well, I, we ran for PT in, uh, in the academy we would run sometimes (laughs) we would run sometimes yeah and i i would i started trail running that year a little bit because i didn't want to ride my mountain bike and it was off season anyway so i was like i'll just go running so like i would run once or twice a week on the trails for fun um and that's the same year i did the spartan as well right after the academy uh that first one in nevada um and so I turned down the job, but they asked if, which this still blows my mind and also a lot of my coworkers' mind to this day. Uh, they asked if, if they held a spot for me in their next academy, if I would want to take it. And at that point, I was like, honestly, I'm not enjoying mountain biking anymore. Um, I'm just going to kind of like limp through this, 
this next season and get my basic EMT because that was the requirement that I had to have before I got hired. Um, so I'm going to work on that and just kind of hit as many races as I can on the mountain bike and kind of phase out. Um, so I moved to Ecuador for three months because my parents actually moved there. So I wanted to like help them adjust and it was my off season and I wanted to, I knew I had a problem with the eating disorder. So I figured if I stepped away, um, and I just graduated that first fire Academy, I had a conditional offer for a job. So I was like, if I get a job, I'm probably not going to do this. I've never heard of someone holding a spot for someone. I haven't either. I have no idea how how that happened. Like you I must have left an impression, obviously. It was it was crazy. No one at work has had a similar experience, from what I understand. Um, so me and my brother moved to Ecuador for three months. I didn't run there more than once a week. I was just training for mountain biking, but I knew I had like an issue with eating still. But it was it was at that point it was getting better because I knew mountain biking wasn't my end goal at that point. What up? To interrupt real quick. What What were your parents doing? You said you were, you were living with your parents in Ecuador. They moved to Ecuador. What, yeah. what were they doing there? They moved to Ecuador to be missionaries to help bring groups like medical mission groups and construction groups up and down a river in it into the jungle of Ecuador. Um, so that's what they do now, but COVID's kind of shut it down, but th- they moved there two years ago. Um, and when they moved, I was like, well, this is before I start a full-time job. Like I should take advantage of this. Um, I want to go actually enjoy riding my bike in another country. So I just do big rides and, and less intervals. And it helped me kind of like work past that eating disorder too. Cause I was eating a completely different kind of food. The ones I would usually binge on weren't an option there. So I figured it would be like a really good way to get away from that, which ultimately it was. Um, So I spent three months there and then I got back and started racing mountain bikes um, while I was going through a basic EMT class um, and also working at a part-time at a bike shop. And um, I still didn't really enjoy racing bikes at that point. And I knew I had to step away to like fully heal from that eating disorder. I I knew I needed to step away from a sport that required me to be as light as possible. Um, Because for me, it wasn't about body composition. Like in my head, it was the number on the scale. And I was still like weighing myself every day and trying to drop weight. Um, Even after Ecuador. And I was like, I just need to step away. Um, And that that was really hard for me. But I had a career to focus on at that point. So I took, I took like the, the one piece that I'd always had in my life of sport and I replaced it with my career instead. Um, and that helped for a little bit, but once I, my department sent me through an academy where basically it was 15 weeks and they let go of anyone who they don't like. Um, so, uh, it was with Salt Lake city and, uh, they, I think there were five of us that graduated, but we started with seven and they let two go. Um, but I was very stressed out that they were going to let me go. And I had that to focus on. And we ran a lot in that camp quite a bit. And then we also did a, a mile and a half test. I don't know why it's not a mile, but in the firefighting community, they have this mile and a half test. That's pretty standard in first, all first responder communities. They choose the mile and a half. I, I don't get it. I'm not really sure, but but it's a thing. And so I, I remember at the beginning, I was like, I'm going to make a good first impression and I'm going to go balls to the wall and I'm going to throw down in this mile and a half. And, uh, 
there was another guy named Tony who was another super stud in this class. And he went out so hard. And I was like, I'll catch him in a little bit. Like nobody runs that fast. And uh, like a half mile into it, I started to reel him in. And then I, I had paced it a little bit better and I pulled away. And I think I did an 808 in that mile and a half. Okay. Um, which I was stoked on. I'd never run that fast. Like I hadn't mm-hmm. timed a mile in who knows how long. So I was like. What, what was that like 515 pace or something? Maybe like 522, 524. All right, 520 pace. So I was just determined to make a good first impression. I didn't want to get fired. So I was like, this is one way I can do it. So the whole academy, like whether we were running up and overs or throwing ladders or pulling a hose line, I was like, I want to try and be the fastest. Um, And that's why I love my job because being fast is, is fun for me. Like I love racing. I love racing myself. I love racing other people. Um, so I had that to focus on. And then I got done with the academy and through my probationary year as a firefighter, and I finally felt comfortable and uh, it was still missing. I was like, I, I still had like this big hole inside me. Um, I, had, I had hit these accomplishments, you know, that like goals in life that I'd always had. I'd been a, an athlete and I had been I'd gotten the job that I wanted and then I got through my probationary year. So it's a lot more difficult to be let go. Um, and I was less stressed out about that, but I still felt like a big hole inside me. And so I started looking for the first time in my life for like a relationship. Cause I was like, Oh, this, this must be like what I need to fill this hole with. Um, so I got in my first relationship at right when I turned 22. So just this last year. Um, and it was great. Um, but I, I eventually found out that that was not what I was looking for. Um, and I still was very lost as a person as to like who I was and like my meaning and purpose in this world. And I, I realized it, it wasn't like a relationship was not going to fix who I was as a person and who I'm meant to be. And like, I can't look for somebody else before I find out who I am. So, um, I had been running at this point last year was when I started running consistently, um, off and on with injuries. But, um, that's really when I started to run. Cause I had let go of mountain biking completely. I didn't touch my bike for six or seven months. Um, and, uh, so I started running instead and I had the fire Academy. So we did a lot of, uh, weightlifting and stuff like that. And my, my body composition changed. And since I had let go of mountain biking, I was very comfortable with building muscle and weighing more. And uh, that's when that fixed for me. Like as soon as I let go of mountain biking and I didn't feel like I had to be a certain weight um, and that I just wanted to be strong, that's when I like my binge eating disorder came under control because I wasn't worried about that anymore, Um, which is thankfully that's what fixed it for me was just like completely letting go of that. So it followed you out of sport. Yeah, it did for a little bit, but as soon as I quit mountain biking, it, it fizzled out very quickly. Do you worry about that creeping back in being in a run predominant sport? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Because I, I a hundred percent know that I could be a lot faster in the mountains if I dropped some weight, um, just because of running up and down hills. Um, well, you found the right sport. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's a group, it's a sport of people that are successful from 130 up into 212 pounds. Like that you've yeah. luckily found maybe the one endurance sport where body type doesn't control the sport yet. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Very that true. was a huge, honestly, that was a huge appeal for me to start Spartan racing. And that's why I felt very drawn to it because I looked at runners and the really fast runners and I was like, I like to run, but these guys are throwing down marathons at five minute mile pace. And I hate running on a road. So that didn't appeal to me. So I started looking at trail running races and those looked pretty fun. Um, but they all looked pretty, pretty small. And I didn't want to do that to myself yet again. So then I, I looked at all these Spartan racers and I'm looking at like, you have VJ, um, who I saw early on through Instagram and he had like a pretty lean body style, um, but not like, not cyclist skinny. And then I see like Hunter McIntyre, who's another person that'll pop on like an Instagram feed. And I look at this guy and I'm like, this guy's yoked. Like I so I knew that I could still be like a body type that's pretty natural for my body um, and hopefully still be fast at it. So that's one reason I was really drawn to Spartan racing for sure. So what are your guardrails that you have in place then? You're young, obviously, which means like you've seen life, but there's a lot of life left and you know that relapse is a possibility. So with this new sport, your first taste in a while of back up on the podium and those those old juices start pumping. What guardrails do you have in place for moving forward? So my biggest one is uh, not to focus as much on losing weight. Um, if, I, if I feel like losing weight will make me faster, which I honestly feel like uh, if I lose a little bit, I, I could be faster in the mountains. Um, but overall i don't i don't really know um there that's more of like something i'd have to know through experimenting but for me it's it's not right now i'm focusing on not making it a number on the scale like it used to be it's purely on if i'm running faster or if i'm completing things faster so if i'm racing better then if i feel like i'm racing better lighter then I would maybe try and get a little bit lighter, but it would be more of like a body composition of being more lean, not like a number on a scale. That's a goal. Um, and then if I feel like I need to put on more muscle mass, especially up top, if I feel like I can win time, cause I'm really interested in the stadium series. Cause I feel like that would play to my strengths a little bit. Um, so if I feel like I could be faster at that, then I would honestly probably put on more muscle mass for something like that so that I can do the heavier things and the, the more explosive things faster. Um, so it's for me, it's focusing on making it more about performance versus weight. That's, that's my biggest guardrail. And then also knowing like who I am as a person now better and not having the external motivation of, of trying to be validated by having a certain Watts per kilo. Um, because now with my relationship with God, I'm, I already feel validated in who I am. I already know who I am. I know who I'm about. I realize what he's designed me for and what he's made me for. And I'm very thankful for that. And if I get 10th place or if I get first, it doesn't really matter. Like ultimately I'm racing because I want to inspire other people to get outside and I also want to show other people that God's given them an incredible body to be able to do amazing things. And like, it doesn't matter what your result is as much, as much as you can tell yourself, 
that you're doing your best and you're being who you believe God has made you to be. Um, so I don't really care about winning money anymore. Like I, I really don't care what place I get for me. It's stepping on that side, like the start line now and being telling myself I'm going to throw down and I'm going to give this my best shot because I've been blessed with this moment and I'm blessed to be here. And I've been given this body and I want to go show people what it can do. Like I've, I'm so thankful for this. And, uh, like I feel so lucky to be here again, um, and be able to race at this level. Is this a, is this a more recent revelation for you? You talked sort of about your purpose. It sounds like this is a, obviously you, you grew up in, in a family of faith that was pretty strong, but this revelation yeah. for you sounds pretty, pretty recent. What, how did that, like how recent are we talking and what was that re- revelation? Uh, it was February. It was February when I finally, finally realized, um, that the the hole that I was missing was something that uh, it was God for me. So um, were you were you one of those those kids? Um, you were kind of going through the motions with it for years. Yeah, uh, and then actually found like your real relationship. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really have off and on like I had a relationship with God growing up, but I was always really focused on athletics and kind of that was what validated me as a as a person was my like soccer and then mountain bike racing and my results through that. Um, that was like who I was and I didn't really, especially when that was taken away, then it kind of became like trying to be a firefighter. And then I realized that like, that wasn't who I was as a person either. Um, and then I was looking for it in a relationship and I realized that wasn't what it was. Who That's not who I am. Um, so, uh, I def, I went through, um, a pretty low point, uh, this last winter. And then February, I actually headed to Ecuador for a month again, um, to visit my family. And, uh, that was from about November to February was when I did a lot of soul searching and kind of put everything else on hold and made that like finding who I am a big priority in my life. And after three or four months, um, of kind of studying different religions and different ways of thought and reading a lot of like weird books on philosophy and uh, like moral philosophy and things like that. Um, and just spending a lot of time talking to people that I respect. Um, I finally found something that made sense to me and answered all of the questions for me of like who I am, why I'm here, what I should be doing, what I'm created for, things like that. Um, and February was where it all started to come together for me. So it was super recent. Sorry, that's a lot. This is like, I wasn't thinking the podcast was going this way. We bro, we always bring it this way. This is how we do it. <laughs> Listen, anyone can discuss training. Anyone can discuss goals and ambitions, but not everyone is willing to expose each facet of themselves so that everyone listening can, can benefit from it. And so we appreciate you doing that. Yeah. Um, I, 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 this resonates with me a bit because I kind of, uh, I got unhealthy with racing from the, the racing for income perspective. When I first went after it, trying to live the, the pro racing to cover my bills and I had kids with it and it became a massive stressor. And for a while afterwards, when I decided, nah, it's not worth it anymore. I immediately got better because I, my restrictor plate was gone. Like my stress and my worry was almost a, I can't afford to blow up in a race. 
because if I blow up, like this is terrible for me, maybe I don't make rent or whatever. And then when I was done with that is when I hit my most successful racing where it was, I have a, a job now. Now, I, if I blow up, I blow up, but it, it, it almost removed excuses. I was able to go after things hard because I wasn't, it didn't matter if I blew up. Uh, so, so with you, that this revelation, this, this filling that hole in your life. And now I don't race for prize money or sponsorships. I race to prove what I can do. What has that done with your actual race brain? I honestly am just there to learn and try and keep up with the, whoever I like is there. Has it changed your strategy or your the way you attack a race? Um, since I didn't really have any experience with Spartan racing until after, I just knew it was something that I felt like God was pushing me to do for a very long time. But I wasn't, I was scared because I'm honestly still freaked out um, because I know that uh, if I'm not careful, a lot of the exact same things that happened with mountain bike racing are going to happen with this. So I was very intimidated to go race because um, if I'm going to race, I'm going to train and race to the best of my ability. And being like half, half-assing half it is not really uh, an option for me. So I was very scared to start racing again, and I still am because I'm afraid that I'm going to allow the the eating disorder to creep back in, the the idea that I have to win prize money to, to be able to afford something or like, I don't have to pay rent right now because I live in a van, but uh, to like be able to buy food or whatever it is. Um, and on course though, I like that. Those fears are valid, but on course specifically, has it changed your ability to empty the tank or to get tenacious? Like the, if you don't care about winning anymore, mm-hmm. do you still hate losing? Or do you race differently out there? Now it's more about myself, for sure. Um, especially since I don't know the people that I'm lining up against yet. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what their potential is. Um, uh, I remember someone right before the Montana race was like, oh, Ian's here. Ian's going to race. And I'm thinking, who is Ian? I'm like, tell mm-hmm. me who Ian is so I can try and sit on his tail. Because I hadn't run 14 miles. I think I've maybe run 14 miles. like five or six times in my life. Um, and none of them before that race were within like eight months. So I, I was showing up to that race. I had done a 12 miler a couple weeks before, but it, it didn't really matter to me because I knew that no matter what, I'm just focused on trying to empty my tank and see where that lines up. So yeah, I, I love the race strategy and um, especially now that I'm new at it, I like to sit behind people and see how they do an obstacle because I haven't done all of them yet. So I like to look at how they're doing it and then do it the same way. Um, So I still have that race strategy in my head of trying to sit behind someone I think is the same speed as me so that I can learn from them. But uh, as far as like, if I'm trying to win or not or different, like holding back or going all in like for me it's always all in at this point because it's not as much about my result as it's me emptying my tank and doing what my body's capable of in training but also in racing so it's definitely changed my outlook on that now that i don't really care if i'm winning the race and getting 500 bucks or 2000 bucks or whatever it is for that weekend versus getting 10th like it 
it doesn't really matter to me as much anymore. Well, that's Kirk and I have talked often about the who is the toughest person to race. And the toughest person to race, in my opinion, is the person that doesn't care about what you do. The person who, if you surge, they're going to keep burying it. And if you drop back, they're going to keep burying it. Like you can't, it's not anything you do to them. They're either going to beat you or they're not, but you, you don't have a say in the matter. The person who's not racing according to your race guidelines is the toughest to race because they don't necessarily, like there's a lot of people, if you surge on them and they start to hurt, they'll crack because that place is gone or their goal was top two or top four. And if that's not there, they don't care. And so, you know, if you can just gap them here, you don't have to worry about them the rest of the day. And it sounds like you have moved beyond that style of racing, which is to me, the next plane of existence as a racer, which is I bury myself regardless of where I am. What was the, what was the key in Montana? I believe you raced with a couple other gentlemen and then you put time on late in the race. I'll tell you all those other people have been doing long runs longer than yours. So that would, that would go against what I just heard. You should have been the one to crack. And they've all done more obstacles than you have. And you were the one who didn't crack. Right. So why, why do you think that is Rylan? What do you think's going on there? Do you think it's years of your endurance background and Hey, mountain biking legs are mountain running legs too, right? It's at least going up, at least going up. Um, so what do you think it was? I thought, from a mile in until mile six, mile five or mile six, that I was going to get smoked by Ian. Um, and why? I, he, on every hill he was running and I was power hiking because I knew that I hadn't run that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so early on, I was like, if I can power hike as fast as he's running or slightly slower, I know where my heart rate's at and I know that I haven't run this distance. So I know I need to hold back. And with how fast he was going the first five or six miles, I was slowly losing him. Um, So I thought for sure he was gone. At one point, he was out of sight. I don't know how many seconds he was ahead of me, but there's there's that saying in mountain bike racing, out of sight, out of mind. Like if you can get out of sight, there's half the battle over. In Montana, does not have great lines of sight. sight. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So it's a very dense forest. Yes. And also the terrain was so rugged, I knew that that would feel like more miles than I had done as well. And it was super steep too, just constantly up and down. So I was, I immediately started gearing down on the super steep sections to power hiking. Um, because I do that a lot in training when I'm doing bigger peaks. So I was like, Oh, I'll just, I'll power hike and kind of save some in the bank. And if I lose a couple seconds here and there, like it's okay, I'm new to this. Like I'm trying, um, I'm doing my best. So I figured in my overall race time, it would help. Um, and then we started hitting some faster single track and downhills, which I really love downhills. Um, and uh, I started reeling him in a little bit and I was back to like 10 seconds behind him. Um, so I just stayed there so I could watch him. And I remember we did like this upside down rope obstacle thing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember <laughs> what it's called. Traverse, um, I believe. Yeah, that one. Um, that's how you know you're new upside down rope climbing thing. Yeah. Well, I lost a ton of time on it. Ian also said after the race, he was like, dude, you lost like 10, 15 seconds on that. Um, Cause I asked one of the volunteers how to do it and what the rules were. And then I did it. And he was like, gapped me by a ton. Cause I was like maybe five, 10 seconds behind him. And then all of a sudden he was 25 seconds ahead again. And I was like, dang it. Like Ryland, my second race ever 
Second race ever was the world championship in Texas. Oh, dear. and I failed that obstacle three times and was booted out of the race. Are you serious? Yep. It was a three and out that day. How'd you fail that obstacle, Dragon? How? Yeah, how? I was out of grip strength. I couldn't support myself. It was the second to last obstacle. It was like 40 degrees and raining. I had never done any of this stuff and I fell off three straight times and I was DQ'd 50 meters from the finish line. Dude, I'm so, so sorry. I feel your pain on the first time you see some of these obstacles, you don't know what you don't know. And we usually choose not the fastest or most efficient way through because we just haven't seen it. No, what I hear is I hear, I hear a gentleman who, who knows his body better than he thinks he does and who managed his effort very, very well. That's what I'm hearing. And, and I think your years of endurance, you know, training and competing would be part of that. So it's, a, it's a, someone who knows her body. And in a long mountain race, I'm going to say, if you've never done it, erring on the side of caution only serves your benefit later on. So where did you take over the lead then? How did that happen? It was in the, uh, so I, after that Tyrolean traverse is what you called it, right? <laughs> um, so after that, we ran a little bit longer and I, I got closer to him again. Um, and I could tell that I didn't have a ton left in the tank. Um, but we had the obstacles coming up and at least in the first grouping of like the main obstacle area, I had done all of those ones in Las Vegas. I think of the first three. So you're an old pro at it now. No, definitely You've already not. seen it a whole two times. You're set. But, yeah, I'd done it twice. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, well, if, if I can not lose time on this, this is going to help because we've only got like three, maybe four miles left in the race. And he looked, Ian looked like he was breathing so easy. He looked like he was running really well. And I was dying. Um, and we went through those obstacles and I, I flowed through the, uh, the slick wall with the rope on top of it. Um, and I actually passed him on that and felt really good. Um, and then there was a huge long uphill after that. And I remember I jogged like right up next to him and he looked at me and I thought, I think this is what he said, but he said like, you're working really hard or something. Cause I was breathing hard. Ian would say something like that. Yeah. I think he said, you're like, I think he said, are you working? Like you, you seem like you're working really hard or something like that. And, and I told him, I was like, I am. He'll never shy away from giving you unasked for advice. <laughs> That's yeah. Ian. <laughs> yeah. So, so we start on this hill and he's jogging and I immediately start power hiking. Cause I'm like, if I can power hike at the same speed that he's jogging, I'm going to be able to light it up across the flat and then bomb the descent. And I, the, like, I knew there had to be downhill after this uphill because logic. So <laughs> I was like, if I can stick with him on this uphill, maybe I can put in a gap on the downhill or at least stick with him. But he looked so comfortable. Um, and we got to the top of the hill and I start running right after the power hiking. And, um, and I felt really good because the flat and the downhill, I felt really good on the whole race. So um, I took the lead and, and I remember at the bottom of the descent looking back and I, I couldn't see him. And, uh, I think you were uh, committed. You were committed at that point. That's it. Uh-huh. And then I started cramping or like borderline cramping. And I spent the entire last three miles. Cause I think that was mile 10 or 11. Um, looking back, just waiting for him to catch me because my hamstrings, there was one really steep downhill and my hamstrings were just borderline cramping to cramping the whole last three miles. And I remember seeing him on the bucket carry 
Like I was putting mine down when he picked his up and I was like, he's going to catch me is what I thought in my mind. And then I was like, no, he's not going to catch you. You're going to go balls to the wall to the finish. And if he catches you, then good for him. He beats you. But if he doesn't catch you, then I mean, you, you have a lot of work left to do. You're not done yet. And, uh, I, th- I started thinking about my mom a lot because she has Lyme's disease and I've never seen anybody who gets hit with waves of like weakness power through as much as she does. So I kept thinking about her and how like even if she fe- she feels way worse than this all the time and even though I'm like cramping a little bit or and phasing in and out of cramping in different muscle groups, I was like, well, I'm going to stick on my red line because I know my red line and I know what I'm capable of and I'm going to stay there because I know I can to the finish because anything less than that is not being honest with myself um, and what I can do. So I, I, and I thought Ian was going to catch me the whole last three miles, to be honest. Um, And then I missed my spear throw and I was like, this is it. He's going to catch me. Um, So I went as fast as I could on that um, and I didn't see him. And then turns out right after that, he missed his. So it ended up making the times very similar. Um, and then, yeah, I, I crossed the finish line. And I um, was pretty skeptical as to like if I actually won or not because I didn't think I was going to win at all, to be honest. Um, so that was a big surprise. Um, and then afterwards, people were telling me who Ian was. Um, and it was, it was kind of the same thing as in Las Vegas. Like I introduced myself to you. And everyone looked at me like, you don't know who this guy is? I was like, sorry, I have no idea who anybody is. Um, so it was kind of the same thing. And like Ian's a stud. And he was super cool after the race and gave me a lot of advice and uh, like pointers and stuff like that. And we talked about some things. And he just cramped worse than I did, honestly. I think that's what it came down to. He has a history of that too. Of cramping? Yeah. Mm. It's not fun. Yeah. Did, did Montana um... – solidify what you felt in Vegas then is this if if this hasn't had wasn't cemented in Las Vegas did Montana cement for you I'm in yeah like I'm, I'm in I'm I assume in. yes sir I was I was gonna ask you about your your post after winning was all about your mother and so my follow-up question was gonna be what is the story there but now that makes sense I was actually diagnosed with Lyme disease last spring myself I'm sorry to hear that. Um, well, it, there's it, my body's not the same, but it's managed. I think I caught it somewhat early enough, Good. Good. Like two months in, which isn't ideal, but catching it right away is so I can relate to you on that level. But I was I, I I was wondering what that was about. So you were thinking a mom and her it her ability to suffer and some of her incapabilities with her disease, yeah. and saying I got this able body, I might as well use it, sort of thing. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. Um she she didn't catch it very fast um and a lot of doctors told her she didn't have it um it's the problem with it it's a tricky disease once once you get infected with Lyme disease from a tick bite if it's not caught early your markers go all over the place and then you and then eventually you can't even really figure it out via blood tests and there's false negatives all the time and i'm sure it was a big runaround for her which is a people don't realize how bad it can be but so it took her a while yeah Thankfully, she's to the point where she only gets hit maybe once or twice a month with like a day where she can't really do anything. Um, but the, it used to be we would go into grocery stores and I would start to see like the left side of her body shut down and she would start limping. And then we would carry her out because she would just shut down so fast and like we would finish shopping and bring her home. Um, 
but now she's she's so much healthier now she has it managed really well but i still i've never seen anyone in my life um like be so honest with with like what they're capable of and uh and being thankful for what they've been blessed with even despite her condition yeah mm. so it's a huge wake up call whenever i think about that because I start thinking about like all the opportunities and, and the, um, sorry, I didn't, I, I'm never emotional like this. Take your time. Bracken does this to people. It's Bracken's fault. Yeah. Take your time. Do what you got to do. Okay. These aren't easy things. Yeah. Um, so she, uh, she's been the biggest example in my life of being honest with what your body's capable of and always trying to push that and she's not even a competitive athlete anymore she hasn't been since uh since she started having babies she hasn't like competed at a at a high level i guess um but she's she always exercises every day and she's always trying to maximize her day for what she feels like god has has made her to do and it it calls that out in me whenever i think about it so that day for some reason um that day in particular, I was, I was just thinking a lot about my mom because, um, like I wasn't feeling the strongest and, and I wanted to shut it down and coast to the finish because it hurt. But, um, like that's, that's not being honest with myself and being honest with who I feel like God made me, me to be. So that's why, uh, that's why I had that post about her because she, she was, a big reason why I stayed on the gas that day because she's a great example for me. We, we glorify and glamorize pain as mm. athletes, especially as endurance athletes. I was, you know, the, the tougher athlete who can absorb the most pain. But once you've seen real pain in life, you realize that there's nothing you can do to yourself athletically that can compare to the unasked for pain that life and nature can give to someone's body. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. lactate buildup, oxygen debt. It mm -hmm. burns in a way that is almost laughable compared to what people truly go through medically. And it changes your decision on course to, all right, I chose this. Like I asked for this. Mm -hmm. It's self-induced and it's almost fake. It's almost like a veneer of pain compared to like what you get when you're actually sick. It's just like a, it's just the crust of a real pain. We're unfortunate to see loved ones go through it, but we're fortunate to get a perspective of what actual discomfort and pain truly is. Yeah. Mm. And when you're out there suffering the most, you get stripped down to your raw self and your mind goes, your mind goes to where it needs to or should go for strength. And obviously that goes to your mother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we know the finish line ends it. Or yeah. DNFing mm. ends it. We have the ability to just say, all right, it's over. And... In true pain, you don't have a say in the matter. And you're, you're again, people are going to get a lot out of what you're saying. And this is another one of those little reminders to people that maybe we just need to <laughs> maybe relax on how tough we think we are sometimes because we chose to do it. We signed up for it. And there's nothing you can sign up for that hurts as bad as the things you don't sign up for in life. Yeah. So, so what I want to know is that, so you mentioned a couple things. I want to get to two things. I want to get to your training and I want to get to what your plans are this year in the remaining 20 minutes. Yes, sir. Um, I have a four hour drive to make. I have a 50 K trail race tomorrow. So I have a drive. So I got to get nice. out. At a Kirk's first ultra. You're going to crush it. 
And guess what? I ran 18 miles last week Snap. and I'm getting total. So I'm getting to, <laughs> I'm getting something to, with you, Ryland, is I've managed to run pretty damn fast off of low mileage. Okay. I think I ran 15 miles the week before Vegas, for example. Wow. Yeah. So I got a formula figured out and obviously you must have something figured out too. And so I want to, I want to dive a little bit into your philosophy with training because um, one, you haven't been running that long and two, you're not running that much and you're kind of on my, my protocol here, um, which I can admire and appreciate. So how do you approach your training being a lower volume athlete? Like what, like, do you, who's coaching you? Are you self-prescribing? Is there a method to your madness? Um, I don't, you don't see many people uh, without knowledge of sport or training show up and win their third Spartan race against a decent field in the mountains. So there has to be some uh, understanding of the body and training. So I just want to hear what you're doing is what I'm getting at. So like I said, I really nerd out on exercise science type stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have a lot of background of being coached and then also coaching others in the mountain biking world um, and cycling. So I've taken a lot of the same principles. The reason I got injured so much last year with uh, patellar tendonitis and two, I two going on three total it band flare ups um, was because I, I have a big aerobic base and I realized that from mountain biking, but I wasn't able to handle the mileage. So I would immediately ramp up to doing 10 mile runs and not have a big enough recovery window. And I would run six miles all the time around that. And within a week or two, I'd have an issue or within a month. Um, so I would get faster and then I would completely shut it down and have to like basically take one to three months off to get my IT band under control or my patellar tendonitis and do very easy running and only cycling. You had the engine of a pro athlete and you had the soft tissue resistance to impact of a new runner. Yes, sir. And I finally realized that finally realized that after it band flare up number three, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I got to do things differently. So then I started looking at uh, previous weeks because I have everything logged on training peaks and a lot of it's on Strava, but training peaks is where pretty much all of it is. So I looked at the mileage that I was able to handle pretty comfortably. And I was like, okay, that's, I should start around 18 to 20 miles a week. So that's what I did right before Vegas uh, was I think two weeks before I did an eight mile week. And then I started feeling my patellar tendon creep up. So then I shut it down and ran like 10 miles before Vegas or something. Um, and the rest was mountain biking. Um, so now what I've done uh, leading up to Montana and then post Montana um, besides catching up at work and doing a lot of circuit training because I'm at work paying back trades, um, is I do, if I'm going to run, my idea is I should run fast. And if I'm going to be racing on trails, I should run fast on trails. Cause that's what I do when I'm racing. And since I can only handle 20 to 30 miles a week right now, 30 being the absolute high end, um, eventually I would like to progress beyond that. But right now that's where I'm at. So what I do is all of my runs, except maybe one a week, that's only three or four miles long. Every other run is I have one long run that's fast, two interval sessions or time trials, uh, one of each usually per week that are fast. So I have three quality sessions. One of them's a long run that's pretty fast. One of them is a time trial that's pretty much all out. Of what, of what duration? Uh, usually it's a 5K, like a, okay. a high tempo 5K. Um, 
and with a mile warm up and a mile cool down before and after um, and some accessory work. And then I have one interval workout, which is either 400s, 800s, or one mile repeats cycled at different times. Like I just kind of pick one and go with it depending on what I feel like my body can handle. Um, all of them are done on the trail. Um, all of them are done on whatever I feel like I can improve on. So if I'm doing the 5k, I try and do it on up and down terrain. That's technical. Um, and I have different routes where I can kind of keep track of if I'm getting faster or not. Um, and then the repeats, I, I've started trying to do them uphill now um, with downhill recoveries because that's what is going to simulate Utah. Um, and then the long run, I just pick whatever I want and I'm just having fun and keeping the heart rate ramped um, and trying to keep it consistent throughout the whole run. And then the rest is recovery and circuit training. Rylan, this sounds extremely familiar right now. Oh yeah? This is exactly how Kirk DeWint is training. Minus as many time trials. I'm, okay. I'm running three times a week and every time my shoes are on, it counts for something. Then I cross train very easy recovery effort in between. And I'm just as fit as if I were running every day. Do you hop on the bike right after your runs too? Mm, I just fill my days in between with the bike. Got it. That's what I do yeah. right after. Cause I have that, I want that aerobic volume. So usually if I can, if I'm off work, this is off work training. If I'm off work, I run and then I eat a banana and like some food real quick, do a couple stretches, hop on the mountain bike and do like below 250 watts for an hour to two hours of depending on how my body's feeling to like spin the legs out, but also build that endurance because I can't handle it on my tendons. So I'm like, why don't I just, mm -hmm. you know, trick my body into thinking it's running more basically. So you're putting in one to three hours of aerobic work almost every day. Yes, sir. And then I do hike and flies. I'm into speed flying. So I've found it's a great way to build my aerobic engine going up and also carry extra weight up the hill fast and then not get the stress coming down because I fly down. He literally flies on. I want you to tell people about this. So it was your birthday recently in the yes, last sir. month. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had, we on our last podcast episode, we talked about Bracken's best week ever and Kirk's best week ever. And you did your best birthday day ever uh -huh. um, recently. And that's when I saw this post and I was like, this freaking kid is a bad ass. I was <laughs> like, dude. This dude, the shit this kid did in one day is incredible. And that was one of the things, this, whatever you call it, speed flying or whatever the heck yeah. you did. What all did you do on your on your best birthday day ever. Can you tell people? Cause it was a pretty impressive. Okay. Um, so I've had this idea for a while and I finally decided to send it. You got to start off with the morning espresso. I had four shots. It was amazing. My buddy, Kevin, awesome. Has a sweet espresso machine. So that was activity. Number one, espresso activity. Number two was backcountry skiing. So we skinned up a couple miles, skied down and then halfway down, I threw the skins back on and hiked up with another buddy and did speed riding, which is you take off with your wing and your skis and you like ski land and you can also like touch down if there's enough snow and like ski on the ground for a little bit and then fly off, um, which I'm working on that progression to be more comfortable with that. And there wasn't enough snow where I was flying. Um, when you say wings, you're talking wingsuit, correct? No, uh, it's a paragliding wing, but it's smaller. So it's faster and twitchier. 
So you can like, you can do barrel rolls if you're really good. Um, I'm working on progressing to that. Um, you can do spirals, which I've worked on a lot. So you fly, touch down, gather momentum and take off all the way down the mountain? Yeah. So basically you take off with the wing behind you, you ski down and it, it inflates the wing above your head and you brake check it and you basically ski off the mountain and then you're flying. And then if you want, you can like throw a, a gnarly turn and then touch down and ski for a little bit and then coast up and then throw a spiral and touch down and ski for a little bit. It's like windsurfing on ski. Kind of, yeah, but but you're like going down a mountainside, so you're a lot more aggressive with it. And then you you land on your skis on a patch of snow. Um, so I did that. And then right after that, I met a buddy to go snowboarding and powder surfing. Um, there wasn't much powder, so the powder surfing was rough, um, but it was still fun. And then we headed down for a mountain bike ride, um, and I went mountain biking for a couple hours. And then right after that, we went trail running. Um, I think we only did four or five miles. Benny Gifford actually showed up for that. That was super fun. Because of course he did. Yeah, it was so <laughs> What's cool. What's the best day without Benny Gifford and his I know, ears? right? It was so cool. <laughs> do you know do you, do you know Benny? Yeah, I met him at the Spartan race. He's the one that helped me get upgraded to Elite the next day. He's like, you okay. got to talk to this guy. So you've known him since February and he showed up in oh April. And he showed yep. up in your, your best week ever. Best day yep. ever. Yep. Good yeah. Benny. Yeah, it was so cool. Man. Was Benny clothed the entire time? More than I was. He was on his best behavior, I guess. That's a big day then. Yeah. But is it your best day if Benny's clothes remained out? That's the question. <laughs> uh, for me, yeah, probably. For other people, maybe not. Um, yeah, then we went running, and then uh, I went and hiked up Cherry Peak Logging Trail up to a peak up there and did speed flying off, which is just you run off the mountain with your wing. And you just, just in regular shoes, no skis. It's like the, the summer version. So it's a different sport technically, cause you're not doing it with skis. Um, and then I went lead climbing. Um, Are you smoked by this point? Yeah, I was by lead climbing. I was like, I need food. And then we had a bonfire and, uh, I mean, there were some booze going around, but I'm not huge into alcohol cause it just kills your recovery. So I mm -hmm. was just pounding the coconut, like uh, coconut flavored waters. So good. A friend bought, brought like four of them for me of like strawberry coconut, raspberry coconut. And I just like drained all of them. And then I had the a bay big... or bye or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Those ones. So the good. Raspberry coconut from, is it bay or bye? Bye? B-A-I. Yeah. I'll call it bay. Bay. All I know is. I saw that video of you and I thought, God, this freaking kid lives in a van. He's got a dozen skill sets of adventuring. And it reminds me of some of the best athletes in our sport. Like you're a Atkins, I Elvin. Mean, you remind me of like a Ryan Atkins or a John Albin lifestyle. And and I saw a video of you running in Montana and I told this to Bracken. I was like, this guy's got his long tights on and no shirt and his legs move like the lower half of Ryan Atkins. And you had a very Ryan Atkins-esque uh, gait. And I was like, this guy's going to be somebody to, to watch out for. So just seeing you live that, uh, that lifestyle um, is, very, is very fitting and setting you up well, I would say, to, to go pretty hard into what, whatever you choose. And if it's Spartan racing, then and I think people are going are gonna to know who you are sooner than later. And, and if I'm being honest, you haven't really run against the very big boys yet in a stacked field. 
And I am dodging Utah myself because I'm not going to go race at elevation, living at sea level without acclimating slightly, but most of them are going to be there. And that is, I'm going to have, I'm, there's going to be a microscope on you a little bit because I'm super curious to see how you perform in your backyard. So it's just, it's very exciting to see new blood. We haven't had a lot of young blood come in other than BJ Jones who can really potentially stick their nose in there. And so, um, yeah, you're going to give people some, somebody to root for, I think. And you don't know that, but I think that's going to be the case. Don't you reckon? Yeah. There are three stages to coming on to the OCR scene. The first stage is someone sees you at a race and they start whispering to the people around them. And so for me, that was Kirk comes back and he's like, he's talks to me on the phone. You're in your car on the way to the airport with Jess, I think Kirk, you're like this kid, there's this kid running. He said, I got out. My plan was to get out hard day two because everyone's tired and just get out, build up a gap, bury it, and then just limp in and stay ahead of everyone. He said, and there's this kid staying behind me and I've never seen him before, which means he's never really been in this sport. And he had soccer shorts on and he has no clue what he's doing and I can't drop him. So like, that's the whisper part where this. Well, let's be clear. I dropped him. Okay. <laughs> but then he didn't, he like, he didn't drop, drop. He didn't drop, drop. Right. I was like, yeah. mother effort still over the shoulder. I see mm-hmm. right there. Because it's yeah. like a dime a dozen. The, the kid that comes out and he hangs around for a while and then you never see him again. But yeah. you were inside. So like that's the whisper section. of There's this new kid out here. And oftentimes he's a, he's a mountain runner or he's a mountain biker. Or he's something else and he's doing this. He doesn't know what he's doing yet. Could this maybe be? But you don't take it seriously until stage two, which is you come out to and beat somebody big. And you just came out and beat the person who took fourth place at Spartan World Championships the last time it was held, I believe. Ian was fourth. Fifth Fifth. Fifth at Spartan. Now, Ian's not in his best form, but he's never in bad form. No. So, right. So, let's say he's in top 10 in the world shape right now. So, you took it to him on a mountain in his backyard. So, like, that's stage two of he came back for another round and he was as advertised. And then stage three is the big boy test. You had one. You had two in the first race with VJ and Kirk, and then you had another one in the second race with, with Ian. And now the third test is everyone's there. What happens now? It, it doesn't matter either way. If no. you blow up, then like everyone blows up at some point, but this is the, this is the final, like if you're in a video game, like <laughs> this is, test. this is about the boss level here. And, yeah. and this, this confirms or denies the hype. And it doesn't derail the hype, but it can like you could take 15th and confirm your hype if you're a player for a while. So I'm excited to watch this third stage of arrival into the sport because I still haven't been able to watch you race. But we'll all get to see it because there'll be coverage of some sort. So really only a handful of people have watched you in person, but that's about to change. I'm going to be honest. Uh, these guys are they look super fast. Kirk's super fast. Um, He's all right. And like, I'm just trying to go climbing every day, run every day that I'm off work and mountain bike every day that I'm off work and then at work, do the best I can do. And, uh, when I show up, I'm going to throw down as hard as I can. And I have no idea where that's going to put me in that field. I'll be honest. So that's all you can do. Yeah. There's no pressure. Actually, you're in the best position because there's no pressure. You, yeah. You're actually, there's much more pressure on the guys who have already performed on the big stage to go do mm-hmm. it again. It's only, it's a win-win for you. You go stick your nose in there and you blow up. Nobody cares at all. And they're still going to be like, watch out for that dude. You stick your nose in there and you stick. 
uh, you're getting posted on Spartan Race Instagram. You know what I mean? It's like a very, uh, it's a win-win. It really is. And you did in, in two races, you did what it took me two years to do in sport. And you're on a very pretty quick, fast track. And I think the thing that intrigued me about talking to you and seeing what you what you do is that if this is something you choose to pursue, um, you know, I'm 38. Bracken just turned 34, right? I, I'm at the, I'll be somewhat at the tail end of my peak potential. And for somebody who's only been running two years, 23, new to the sport, and seeing what you're already capable of is very promising for you. And I think OGs like myself, like the, the, the older guys, I like to see that. We need new blood. So seeing that for me was like very satisfying. And I don't know about you, Bracken, but it's like finally, like there's somebody who comes in that might be able to stick their nose in with the guys who've been here for years. And, and we could use that, I think, some more young blood. Yeah, yeah. We, like we want to leave the sport in a better place than we found it, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that's us, but a lot of that is just who comes in and follows. And you're checking some boxes that aren't supposed to be checked when you're young. The first is mountain acumen. Like you're supposed to learn how to run hills when you start approaching 30. <laughs> like you do your track <laughs> stuff and cross country in your teens and 20s, and then you get, get steep. You want a mountain beast right away. You're not supposed to be able to finish off long races with good, strong obstacles, but you gapped in through the final big gauntlet and big climbs. Like you're not supposed to do that young and altitude supposed to be like, it punches you in the face because you've never been at altitude and you go up and race and it's this huge abrupt like brick wall, but you live in Utah and you, ski and, cl- you ski and <laughs> climb big mountains. Like you, you check too many boxes early on for this to be a flash in the pan unless you decide it is. So again, we're excited when youth comes up and then is justified because our sport is an awesome sport, but a lot of people don't try it. And a lot of people don't come back after the first time getting slapped around by it. Like that first time in Laughlin years ago where you didn't come back, that's the typical story of a talented young athlete in our sport. The fact that you're back is exciting for us because the people that come back for more are the ones that stay for a long time. I'm excited. No pressure, Riley. I've honestly like... Being completely honest, I have felt for years that it's something that I'm meant to try and do. And it's Mm -hmm. just been a matter of life lining up with that. And right now, um, I'm just super grateful that life is allowing me to do this. And I plan on running with it for as long as I can um, until God shuts that door for me. And uh, I don't know how long that's going to be. But I do know that right now it's something I'm meant to do. Um, and it's something that I really want to chase. So I'll be here until that door closes. Well, Utah has produced more national and world champions than any other state. Hmm. I don't know what that means other than that. <laughs> it's a good place to be from. I love You've got it. mountains. You can get long and steady. You can get steep and gnarly and you have altitude. You're young. You have a background of building up your lungs and your legs. And it seems like you have the temperament for the sport. So I guess this is our welcome and let everyone know that this is real. Let's go get after it. I'm excited. Thanks, guys. And uh, in a couple of minutes, can you just tell us um, what your racing plans are this year? Um, for, for that you know of anyways? So Montana kind of changed it for me. Uh, it changed the way that I was planning on doing more like trips to Norway and stuff like that or like trying to travel a little bit more this year. But um, I do really feel like this door's opening for me and that I'm being pushed in this direction. So I started looking at tickets to Abu Dhabi because that'll give me a long time to train. Um, yep. And I've never been there, so it'd be cool to go. Um, 
So I'm starting to look at the tail end of the race season because I know that like, yeah, I'll, I'll show up in Utah, but I'm not so naive as to think that these guys that have been doing it for years are, are magically going to not be as fast. So uh, to be honest, like I'm more looking towards the later half of the season because I have a lot of uh, endurance to build if I want to compete in beasts. If I want to be good at beasts with the fast guys, I need to be able to hold a fast pace in between obstacles consistently. Um, so I'm more focused on the tail end of the season, to be honest, like Tahoe and Abu Dhabi. Um, and also because I love the process of training and I don't want to feel rushed. So yeah, yeah. Um, because I don't want to feel like I need to ramp my mileage up because I'm the typical person that I'm like, oh, I feel like I could be good at this in, in two months. So I'm going to go straight to running a marathon every day. Like if, if I felt like I could handle that, I would, but I know I can't like for me, most of my runs have to stick around like six or seven miles right now with one, one long run a week. That's what mm-hmm. I, my body can handle. And so I'm slowly going to build and hopefully slowly get better at the beast distance um, and then also focus on some sprints. If I can make it to uh, like a stadium, that'd be awesome. So I think I'm going to try and do the stadium in Phoenix because my grandma lives down there and I have that four day off work. So I think I'm going to try and do that. Um, I'm working on getting trades for Utah so that I don't show up on zero sleep. Um, be good. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking at Abu Dhabi and Tahoe. And I think I... Um, I need to work on trades for Tahoe and uh, Abu Dhabi as well. So um, I've got to make, I already have good friends. I've got to convince my good friends that uh, I need the days off and I will cover theirs. So I've got a little bit of trading to do, but we'll be good. You got some work on your hands. Think about West Virginia at the end of August too, unless you got something going. That's a, that's a really nicely balanced course. And that'll be, that'll be all the players will be there. And that'll be, that'll be another good, shake out for you to figure out where the cards fall. It's my favorite course in the, in the country and most will seek it out. I have a question. Do you guys know if big bears happening? Cause my uncle that like my, my uncle that I always like to hang out with uh, has a place in big bear and I saw they rescheduled it and I actually would really like to try and go to that one, but I don't know if it's just a myth that it's happening or if it actually is. We have no clue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we don't we don't know more than you do. We'll reach out okay. the moment we know. Okay, cool. <laughs> That'd be fun. Well, I appreciate the time, man. This th- this is not going to be our last time chatting. I don't think so. All right, we we just got a good solid two hours, and you haven't really raced in the sport yet. So just imagine <laughs> what we're going to have to talk about after you spent a year racing and training and learning what you don't know. We'll, we'll revisit all this. Okay. All right. Cool. If uh, if people want to keep up with you, uh, what's your Instagram handle? I know you're somewhat active on there. It's at Rylan Shattig. Uh, the way you spell my name is R-Y-L-A-N. And then my last name is S-C-H-A-D-E-G-G. It's a difficult name for people, but it's just my full name. That's it. So All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Appreciate your time today. We'll be keeping an eye on you. Don't you worry. I'm excited to race you guys. Or, well, I'm excited to race you again and then hopefully yeah. get a race both of you at some point. So, at yeah. some point, it's going to happen. Yeah. All of the races fun. you listed are not on my plan other than Abu Dhabi. So, that's why you got to go to West Virginia. Okay. I might try and go there. Um, 
I, I that's where uh, mountain bike nationals were the last time that I went. So oh, yeah? maybe I'll have to make a return trip to pay back what happened last time. No flats are going to happen in a running race. <laughs> West Virginia, maybe Tahoe for me. Okay, sweet. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you again. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thank you.